Hello and welcome to the Tech Lunch Podcast, where we encourage our listeners to learn something new about tech every week. This can range from learning about new and exciting applications to the advancements in coding and technology. If you are always learning, you will always be a step above the rest. Take the time during lunch or during a break to listen and learn, kind of like a lunch and learn, but for the years. This podcast will open the listeners' ears to new and exciting technologies they may have not been purviewed to in the past. These topics will range from manufacturing technologies to data collection technologies and everything in between. Hello and welcome to the Tech and Watch Podcast. I'm Nick. Hello, I'm Ed. <clears throat> and once again, we have a special guest tonight, Mr. James. Introduce hey guys, yourself. I'm James. So, you know, tonight we're going to kind of talk about industrial change. You know, we start talking about, when you start talking about industrial change, you start thinking about the episodes we've done before. And those episodes we've done before is MQTT, IOT, IIoT, Industry 4.0, and the AGV topics. You know, everything that kind of works together to move us into the next generation. But also, that goes back into what we're talking about where we know that the maintenance guy now is not going to be the same maintenance guy we're going to deal with, you know, in the future. So we started thinking about a more technologically savvy, you know, maintenance department or an IT department that's taken over the IT side or the, the IOT side or the, you know, or the OT side, depending on how you look at it. You know, we started thinking about, you know, the visualizations, digitizations of things, the virtualizations of, of, you know, your PLCs and your local area networks and stuff like that. You're switching, you know, as we get into that. So the big thing is, you know, we start talking about industrial change. You know, this is a huge topic that can go complete sideways if we let it. But, you know, we'll let it get that way if we need to. So when I start talking about industrial change, you know, you know, I'm going I'm to default you, Ed, from the OT side. When you start thinking about industrial change from the OT side, what are you thinking about? Well, what, <clears throat> what I think is you have to adapt. Everything has to adapt or it dies. So we can't rely on traditional or legacy systems. We can't do what was done 20 years ago. We have to think 20 years ahead. We can't be stuck in stagnant situations where, hey, that's the way it was always done. Maybe the way it was always done was not the right way. And I would, in my opinion, I think what we should do in this beginning is actually ask the person that's at that level, how, how has it, how have you seen the workforce either grow or not grow over the last 10 years in, in your experience? Um, well, Ed, I think the, the immediate answer to that is that there's a large amount of stagnation. And unfortunately, that is centered on the American market. Um, now, I have to be very careful here not to come off too politically but let's it's it's a large enough problem that we all agree on it and it's that a way of doing things um that was centered upon 30 to 40 years in the past has prevailed and replenished itself up until the the modern era and most likely, in, in my estimation, extending possibly two decades from now. 
And uh, you can read that to mean that I'm saying we're still doing the way we we're still doing things the way we did things in the '70s, um, and that's that our our technical industry, the the people that supply um, our technical solutions, are still looking to sell the same things that they were selling in the '70s. They're still looking to sell gadgets and widgets and physical um, physical accessories to production that more and more and more, um, as, as the years go on, we're seeing uh, is a massive problem, especially with, you know, COVID and the supply chain issues we're having. Um, so unfortunately, my answer to that question again is that it has stagnated. Um, but hopefully we'll see that changing over the next decade. So what, what I think I'm hearing you say is is that the technology is there. We're just getting the same uh, box that we always had. 100%. And my... My ideal, and I'm going to pass this off to Nick really quick, is that we could be doing this stuff in the cloud. We don't have to have all this hardware and all these legacy systems in the, out on the shop floor. So, Nick, can you kind of delve into that, how these systems in the cloud could uh, actually profit and be beneficial to the uh, production environment? Yeah, actually, you know, when you start talking about cloud environments and stuff like that, you know, we also talk about, you know, local visualization networks. So you're talking about, you know, local data centers and, and stuff like that. For example, now, you know, these days, when you talk about the, the shop floor, you're talking about like hard-coded PLCs. You're talking about hard, you know, equipment on the shop floor. You're talking about, it, you know, the shop floor that does not change. You know, if you think about it, how the production lines have been set up have been the same since Henry Ford. You know, but however, when we start going into the visualization, you know, standpoint, you talk about visualizing and virtualization of the PLCs. You know, you have Windows-based and Linux-based PLCs right now that run on their own virtual machines. You know, and all they do is they talk through a switch, through a VLAN to a local I.O. You know, and what that does, now you don't have to buy a, a cabinet or any of that stuff. You don't have to worry about it. It's not even required. You know, but the thing is, is then you can go and cloud base your entire MES system. Your entire controls network can be cloud based or just virtualized. You know, for that matter, if you really don't want to jump into the cloud. So are you advocating PLC as a system? I'm, I'm, I'm advocating PLC as a, as a service, not as a system. I'm talking about, you know, SaaS, the PLC, SaaS, the MES system. You know, and that's the thing. SAS the HMIs if you have to. You know, mm. however, please SAS them. And but the thing is, if you talk, if you start talking about, you know, and I'll, I'm going to deviate this to you, James, here in a second. If you SAS all these equipment, you know, it, the thing is, you know, you have somebody else in charge of your network, which can infiltrate some, you know, security risks and security issues. But however, if you virtualize that network and you keep it on your own network, you don't have to worry about the networks anymore. However. Now you just deal, dealt with 95, you got rid of 95 percent of your overhead. If you have to do a change or anything like that, when you think about the virtualization of all of your, you know, controls networks and controls in, in your controls area, 
you know, what are you thinking about, you know, as you're looking down the road for like a SaaS and a SaaS product or even as a local virtualization network process for your controls environment? Well, Nick, I think uh, you're hitting the nail right on the head, and that's that the future of the industry, whenever the industry catches up to its own future, is the reduction of hardware on a massive and unprecedented scale. Um, so we have an industry dominated by a mindset that I like to call the Philip Morris sales method. And that's, you got it right. It's uh, cigarettes. You get them hooked on a certain way of doing things. And once they're hooked, you, you don't really have to market it to them anymore because they're just going to keep buying it. Um, you know, and with, with Ed's point earlier, how is the workforce changing? Well, it's stagnating, but we're seeing large shifts start to happen. When these large shifts start to happen, and when we all realize the benefit of hardware reduction, and this, this, this could be a series of episodes in and of itself, but just some... some small points is i mean guys how 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 expensive are hmis not just from the two big guys but from red lion and uh automation direct and all these small companies making hmis i mean for a little tiny touch screen that's about the size of your phone you're looking at at least a thousand dollars if you want something big and flashy and attractive and, you know, something that, you know, your average person can read one or two or three or maybe even four different data columns on. Uh, what are we talking about? $2,500 to $5,000, um, $6,000. But when you start thinking about these virtualized systems and these cloud-based systems, you start thinking that, oh, well, good God, uh with a very minimum expenditure of effort, I can put this on an Amazon Fire HD that cost me 60 bucks off of eBay. And now there are security concerns to think about with that, but I would I would argue that you know your net gain outweighs those. So if you virtualize this environment, <clears throat> let me say it another way. As a controls engineer, you have to deal with external companies coming in and doing work. And a mm. lot of times you have to look over these things. Mm. What if I was able to take AI, a Docker environment, a container, and virtualization and put it in one, and you could dump a .awl file into that, and it went to work on that file, and you gave it a, you gave it a parameter. You said, hey, these are the parameters I want to look at. If it don't meet that, let me know. Well, how, how much time would that save you if you didn't have to virtually look line to line, FB to FC, to try to figure out what somebody was thinking or somebody was trying to hide? And not yeah. just time, but labor. And it's something that this, fortunately, is, is the industry is getting ahead of it. There are many initiatives to try and create 
intuitive auto-populating coding. And uh, I'll be honest, I haven't looked this far, but there are these codeless initiatives and partnered with a very strong AI. Um, not only just a time and an effort reduction, but the let's let's all be honest. We're we're automation guys, so we always have to think about a headcount reduction. And we're automation guys, so we know how hard we are to hire. And I know we know how hard we are to keep on staff. So <laughs> when you just think about a future with not necessarily no controls personnel, but minimal, and I mean minimal controls personnel with most of the tasks being able to be farmed out to IT or to be handled through AI, the dollar amount savings end on end, year on year, start start to look very attractive. Well, I'm actually going to blow your mind on that. You know, we start talking about, you know, stuff that's going around. And actually, something, like, we like to give a charge. You know, kind of you know, have somebody learn something new. And, you know, that goes back to this. You want to save money in the automation realm, correct? Definitely. You want to have more budget, more money in your budget, so you can buy the be the next best thing when it comes down to a sensor, correct? Uh, yeah, definitely. But Most now, cases. if you think about it, you know, there's actually projects out there in the open source world, you know, known as Open PLC, which are 100% free that you can run on Windows. You can run on Linux. You can run the damn thing on a Raspberry, or the darn thing on a Raspberry Pi, if you really felt like it, using a Modbus TCP connector at the line to run your, your all your stuff. You can virtualize 95% of your PLCs just by going free. You know, but and the thing that leads me to the charge of, the, of you know for today is go out and learn this thing, download it, play with it, see what's going on. You know, so today you know the software you know of topic is the Open PLC network. You know, it's a great way to teach somebody. You know, um, it's hundred percent free. You know, you can load on a Windows machine, you can code it on a Windows machine using Ladder Logic if you really want to go that way. But the thing is, is it gives you a realm into the Industry 4.0 namespace. So if you think about it, and this also, you know, kind of deviates into the next point that I think we're at, you know, when we start talking about industrial change, is training. Now, now, now you know, I, I, I hear James over here getting heartburn, you know, so um, so who wants to eat this one first, Ed, you or, or, or James? Oh, let me eat it and let me pass it to James. Yeah, let's do it, man. <laughs> so so what, what, this, this is what I want to present to you. Every industry that's critical, uh, guys that fly airplanes, the military use flight simulations. Why are not why are we not in an industrial environments doing simulations? Why are we not doing fire drills? Why are we not going to the spot and doing verification of what a person knows? It's not to get rid of a person, it's to find out what the Weakness is that he what he don't understand. What in this concept are you not understanding? And then you take that person, you run them through an environment, and then I take my digital twin. So what I mean by a digital twin? 
I take a snapshot of the whole shop floor. I put it in into a container. I say, hey, tear it up. You destroy it. One, because I want to know where the bug's at. Two, because I want to know where your shortcomings at. And three, I want to know how to optimize my system. So, James, when, when I say these things, when I say containers, and, which is dealing with Docker, when I say virtualization, we're talking about using uh, VirtualBox or VMware. When I talk about you not having to go out and explain something to somebody a hundred times, when you can just take and capture every click that you do on your screen and turn that into a training uh, document and give it to the person. But the training document says, hey, at every step, somewhere you're going to have to show that you understand or comprehend. You can't go to the next step until you comprehend. So what do you think you would do with these tools? How would that make your job more efficient? Yeah, what's training mean to you? Well, Ed, uh, as... As I think we all know, training is a dirty word in the controls world, and it's because it doesn't exist. It's absolutely non-existent. You can you can get uh, vendor training and you can get supplier training, but on-site defined strategized training programs don't exist. And I think it all comes down to the main issue with controls and that it's that we are the problem. And I know a lot of people are going to get angry about that, but if you really think about it, uh, we are. And it's because we occupy a space that is in between so many technical realms and so many disciplines that no one really wants to touch it. It's not the fun thing. It's not the cool thing. It's not the sexy thing. You'll get paid and you'll have uh, a comfortable life personally, um, but you won't enjoy your work for the most part. You're, you're coming in every day to a factory. Um, and that's an issue for the future of the industry because you really can't sell that to the kids these days. Um, so what this means to me is that you can not necessarily reduce, but repurpose controls as a discipline so that you can, you can virtualize it, you can desegment it and decentralize it so that it can be realized by people who are coming from different wavelengths and different walks of life. You know, traditionally we grow into controls guys out of maintenance and we have a hard enough time just finding maintenance engineers. So I don't think that's a sustainable metric for the future, even if controls were to remain on the safe wavelength and we all know that it won't. Okay, so now going from that, we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna jump that into the industrial change standpoint, where we kind of touched on it, you know, a little while ago, of how we're moving from a industrial controls or a maintenance standpoint to a smarter maintenance standpoint. So we've kind of maneuvered our, our ourselves away from what we've called in past episodes the wrench turners and the hammer bangers. You know, from, you know, getting your hands dirty and, you know, poking away at things with a stick, you know, hoping it works. 
you know, to the new age of, you know, being around for like the technology standpoint, the technology shift. So, you know, as we go into Industry 4.0, do you think that, you know, the shift Industry 4.0 will make your job easier or will make it harder? Or do you think that there's still a training gap, going back to the training topic, to be able to handle that? Let me, let me before he starts, let me jump on. Go ahead. Right, there it is. So, that <clears throat> I am from... So myself and James and, and Nick are from a different, uh, we're from the 70s, probably from the 90s, and probably from the, I would say 70s and 90s, around that area. So here's the difference. So let's talk 70s, 80s, 90s, and 2000s. The thing with the 70s, the 80s, and the early 90s was we didn't, depend so much on uh, mobile technology. Now, most of the kids from, I'll say, the middle of the 90s to now depend on technology, which is great. Mm -hmm. It's great because it's always good to take things that are mundane things and make them uh, things that you can put in the background and focus your brain cells on something else. So here's here here's a conundrum for Nicholas or Nick as I call him and James. Or we call him Nick James, not to be confused with Rick James. So think about this. What if I could simulate a whole production year? What if I could simulate all data being sent from the the shop floor for a year? How could I take those things? Put them in a simulator. And I'm not talking about a virtual machine. I'm saying a simulator. Simulator with AI that crunches out some data and spits out, oh, wait a minute. Uh, you're going to have about 10 downtimes with somebody doing this because you didn't notice it, but there's a bug in the code that can happen. Uh, Nick, uh, I'm sorry, but you didn't notice it that the guy that made the uh, back end of your system uh, he made a mistake in the, S the SQL database. If you correct that, you won't have this problem that, that year. You have another problem, but you won't have that problem. If you correct this problem, there is no way that somebody can manually or in automatic make this thing happen. So we're going to go to James, then we're going to go back to Nick, because Nick is going to define what I'm talking about, and James is going to tell me the heartburn he has when somebody makes a mistake three or four times. Um, you know, Ed, uh, I think what you're talking about is a very dangerous subject because you're not only touching on controls and maintenance in general, but you're talking about <laughs> some of the uh, some of the pain we're experiencing, not only in the auto industry and not only in American industry, but in globalized industry as a whole, and that's. Uh, we have a knowledge gap and we have a shifting didactic in human evolution and that we have all these kids, like you said, coming up with technology in their hand 24-7 and that's something we cannot overlook. Because it wasn't, for, for myself, I didn't get a cell phone until I was in college. Um, and it was a big moment for me. 
um, but just the experience of using an interface on a daily basis from a young age, I don't think we understand the impact that's going to have on the human brain. Um, so the application of AI, I, I, I think it, it is the next logical evolution of manufacturing as a whole and the answer to so many problems, the first and foremost being staffing and recruitment, because let's just be honest, nobody wants to really do this job anymore. And we can't really blame them, uh, but that's just the way it is. Uh, and I don't necessarily think that's a negative. I think that's a, we're coming up with solutions for problems as they arise and sometimes even before they arise. And I think for the human race, this may be the first time we can actually sit down and say that, that that's happening. Um, unfortunately, I think there still is um, some things standing in the way, but I think you'll over the next, like I said, two decades, you're going to see a massive shift in that. Nick, what are your thoughts? You know, I think that, you know, we start getting into AI and especially, you know, rapid testing and long range and endurance testing. We start getting into, you know, more of the, you know, capacity planning. You know, you start getting into the redundancy. You know, can I break my systems? Um, you know, what is my load testing? It gives me an actual load testing for a year. So it gives me better ways to plan out my systems, my resources, my CPU loads, my, my RAM loads, my, you know, database storage, that type of stuff. You know, if I could test it for a year, then blow away all the data and have a dev environment, that's ready to go. You know, and I just build on top of that dev environment to an int environment where I can test new integrated technologies and I move to a product environment that can support my shop floor. You know, but it also takes all that documentation and, and you know, and stuff like that. And it, it builds upon each other as we grow into what is considered, you know, a multifaceted, you know, development environment from the dev integration and production environments. But, you know, to support the shop floor stuff, you know, we're talking about a production environment that, you know, can support different things. But if you start talking about the cloud environment and stuff like that, you know, like we were talking before with the open PLC topic and the fact that we can virtualize that, you can set up PLCs for your dev environment, your production environment, your integration environment, and play with it across the namespace. You know, I don't have to, that means we don't have to run our, our, the lines 100% of the time with 100% of our resources. We can plan those resources out during, during um, um, uh, integration and production and also better support commissioning if things are already pre-planned ahead of time. So let me be the digital advocate. All right, we'll let you lead us out there, Ed. So for me, what if I could take everything in your company, take a snapshot, and put it into the cloud? I'm talking about your digital twin, your exact digital twin. Something happens on the shop floor and you need to recover. Talk to your digital twin. Your digital twin puts you right back where you need to be. It's, it's called a restore point. Yeah. So like if you play, if anybody plays video games, there's always a point that you say. Yeah, the historian. So look at it this way. What if I have a, a plant that is the most productive plant in my company? What if I could take a digital snapshot of that plant and take it to another place 
and say, hey, this is the model I want. Exactly. To down to the atomic layer. That's what we're talking about here. We're talking about being able to be flexible as a company. We're talking about being able to uh, expand when you need to. Being able to recover if somebody leaves the company or somebody's sick. That's what we're talking about when we say digital twin. And I'll, I'll end it there. And we appreciate everybody that's listened to our podcast. Uh, we really appreciate our special guest, James. He's really uh, enlightened us and gave us a lot to think about. And as always, Mr. Nick is the man. Hey, you know, keep learning. Have a good one. Thank you for listening to the Tech at Lunch podcast, where we hope you learned something about tech during your break or during your lunchtime. If you did, please give us a follow to prevent missing future episodes. If you have any ideas or something you want to hear or learn about, please send us a show idea to podcast at volcanora.com. Hope you have a good rest of the day and continue learning.